Man, that was awesome. That was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Tell you what, I'm going to change it up a little bit here. I'm going to let you sit down. I know you're tired. You guys have been working hard, worshiping hard, and that's a good thing. Hey, and also, I'm going to, this, so this team is trying to figure out how to exit the stage. I'm going to let them go ahead and start making their way off the stage. And as they do, um, we, I just want to tell you, what an incredible picture of the body of Christ, as Pete said earlier. Amazing. So I can be free, I can be whole, and I'll tell everyone I know. Yes. Amazing thought. And so that's why you came here this morning, right? That's why you came. You didn't maybe know that when you got up. You just thought, it's a cold morning. I get to wear my jacket finally. You know, but you came for this. You came to remember this truth of who God is and what he's done. And our focus, as Pete told you earlier, is on the goodness of God. And we've seen his goodness. We've beheld him, the glory of the one and only. In what we've sung, what we've seen demonstrated, it's a great way to start. I don't know how I can get better than this. I, I should just sit down. You'd probably be happy with that too. I do want to tell you a couple of things before we even get in, then I want to pray for us because um, this is one of those seasons in Northland's life where God is ushering us into some new and unknown things, as you've heard already today. But I'm not scared. I'm not afraid of this season. I hope you're not either. Yeah. Because God always has a plan and purpose for his people if we're following him. And first and foremost, we got to be sure that that's what we're doing, that we're listening to the right voices, the right voice, the right communication from God. There was a great... Um, baseball movie in 1999 called For the Love of the Game. It's one of my favorite movies. Kevin Costner's in it. Some of you are shaking your head. You know this movie. And there's a scene in this movie. Kevin Costner is an aging pitcher. And uh, he's not sure if he's got it in him anymore. He's, he's wondering, and, and a lot of people are telling him he doesn't have it. And uh, there's this one game. It's a really critical game. You can Google this. It's a minute 45 seconds on YouTube. I've watched it five times in the last 24 hours. It's a great scene. And Costner is on the mound. He's getting ready to pitch his first pitch. He plays for Detroit. They're playing the Yankees. And in Yankee Stadium, and people in the stadium are yelling at Costner and telling him, you're a bum. You're washed up. You're done. It's over for you. They're yelling some things that I can't say here in front of you on a Sunday morning, too. And and they're telling him, and Costner is hearing all this, and he's looking around, and he's hearing these voices, he's hearing it all, and he's taking it all in. Then he does this thing that's a part of his routine, and he says these three words, clear the mechanism. It's magical. When he says that, everything else fades away. The voices go away. He has clarity. And he's able to do the thing that he's supposed to do, which is focus on the next pitch. And that's what he does. And that's your job as well. Clear the mechanism. 
Focus on your next thing to do. Your next thing to do right now, I'm not talking about when you leave here, but right now, is to clear the voices. Any voice that would be a voice besides God's voice, including my own, you need to clear that away and hear him distinctly and effectively this morning. And so may I pray for us that we could do just that, that we could clear the mechanism and hear only from him. So because you've been standing so long, I'm going to let you sit for this prayer, uh, but because God will still hear us. So let me pray for us and we'll dig into Philippians. God, we're so thankful to you because you are the God of goodness. You're a God who came and And you who are in charge of everything, a sovereign God who hung the moon and the stars in place, you brought us here today. You brought us here, whether we're here on Dog Track Road or in one or one of our wonderful beloved friends in the correctional facilities or in one of those distributed churches gathered or just someone who logged in with us online from remote parts of the world, we're here because we want to hear from you. So would you clear our minds of everything but what you have for us today? We pray that you would take us deep into your word. We also thank you for the privilege we've already had had this morning of, of worshiping you in spirit and in truth. We've seen that, we've heard it, we've watched it. We thank you for that. We thank you for the thing you've already done for us and given us the privilege of participating in worship through the giving of our tithes and offerings. We thank you for that. We thank you that we're able, that you've called us to do that. And we thank you for one another, the fact that you've put us into a community. And we're here to be with you and we're here to be together. So help us as we take our steps into that right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're doing and going through this book of Philippians is we're trying to understand where joy comes from, how that works in our life, in our world, and in our very community here. In Philippians so far, what we've done is we have uh, heard Paul's introductory remarks to in this letter to a church in, at Philippi. If you're new to the study, we're, Philippi was a church that Paul had founded and entrusted to them Uh, over 10 years before he writes this letter. He writes it from a Roman jail where he is uh, chained to a Roman guard 24-7. He is always incarcerated. Paul wrote a lot of letters from prison. He wrote to a lot of the churches from prison. And the Philippians uh, letter is one that's short and it has the theme of joy. Joy is all over this letter because Paul wanted joy to be all over the church at Philippi in the same way that he wants joy to be all over the church at Northland. And so we've dug into this to figure out what does this mean for us now because God's word is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, meaning it can cut both ways in our lives And it's still alive. It's still for us today. This letter is as real as if it had come into your inbox this morning. And in fact, it has. Because here's what happens. Paul begins after he's written in verses 1 through 11. First of all, his introductory remarks, his salutations. He's greeted some people individually. He's prayed for them. 
And now in verse 12, he moves into a key part of setting up, he's still kind of setting up the central message in this book of Philippians. And so in this letter of Philippians, so here's the first thing he writes after these introductory remarks. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much, mo much, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So I'm going to pause right there. I'm going to cover three more verses before we go, but let me pause here and tell you that this passage breaks down, if you're a note taker, it breaks down into three central ideas, three central points that I think we can take away from these six verses. And those three points, I've made it easy for you, all start with the C. I'm not a Southern Baptist, but I do like alliteration. So here's what they are, character, circumstances, and challenge. The first one, character, is found in this first little uh, set of words. There's the first five words that Paul says, I want you to know. I want you to know. These are not just introductory words. There's a great deal written into these words that Paul says, I want you to know. Do you realize that every time you have a conversation with somebody, there's something you want them to know, right? Whether it's just, uh, how you doing today? You know, you, wanna, you want them to know that you don't really care about them. You're just trying to find something to say to them, you know? Or, but, but there are some times where we have conversations that actually do have content to them. I was talking to some friends of mine this week and one of the guys said to me, to us, he said, you know, we, we live our lives at the speed of transaction. We live our lives at the speed of transaction. When he said, I said, wait a minute, say that again. We live our lives at the speed of transaction. The problem with that statement is because, you know, we were created to live our lives at the speed of relationship. But think about how we live our lives. Think about the transactions that we make, even in the conversations we have. How much do we really want that person to know when we have a conversation? We live in a world where it, it gets faster and faster. Information comes to us faster and faster. Do you remember 14.4 modems? When everybody was excited about a dial-up modem that had that speed. A buddy of mine back in that day, Will Sarah, I remember the day that 28.8 modems came out. Will Sarah and I stood in an office supply store and waited in line for two hours to get a 28.8 modem thinking, this is going to change our life. And it did. It did. Our emails came like five seconds faster than they did before. But now think about the speed with which we just, that we just take for granted. You know, on my phone, I did this last night. On my phone, I can pick up my phone and there's an app that I can press and I can order food that somebody, I don't know who it is, somebody then gets in their car, goes and gets my food, brings it to my door and I don't do a thing. I don't even pay them. I don't know how they get paid. But... <laughs> I don't know. 
I just press the thing and it happens and they come to my door. Do you know that I can also, on my phone, there's an app that if I need to go somewhere and I don't want to drive myself, I can just press a button on my phone and somebody shows up at my door. I've done this just this past week because for another reason. And, and they take me where I want to go and I get out and I don't pay them. I just walk away. I don't know how they get paid, but it's amazing that that works that way and, and, and that kind of speed. You can do that. You can order your groceries with your phone and somebody will bring them right to your door and just hand them to you. It's amazing. And all this happens, you know, if it takes 20 minutes for my food to get there, I'm ticked off. Why should I have to wait 20 minutes? I mean, we move at such speed. You know, that's fine and good and I like it. I'm not complaining about it. But where it's a problem is when that becomes the way we interact with each other. When we see our relationship with each other or our conversation with each other or our communication with each other as a transaction. You know, that we're always saying something to one another because of what we can get back so that we can make the minimal investment into another person but get back all that we want. And Paul says, I want you to know and I think he pauses as he's writing that. Just my movie in my head. I want you to know. What does he want us to know? What do you want to know? Because that's what Paul is trying to communicate. That life for us should move at the speed of relationship. Where would Paul have gotten an idea like that? If you're willing to venture that he had that idea. I think he got it from Jesus. I could tell you lots of stories about it. But there's one in particular that I think is just amazing. It's in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 38. I'm not going to read this whole passage, but I would encourage you to read this passage sometime this afternoon. Mark 5, 21 to 38. Let me just tell you what happens in this sequence of verses. Jesus has been teaching and healing and walking around and all of his entourage is walking around with him. And Jesus has just cast out a demon from uh, this man. And so the crowds are thick and they're everywhere. And in the midst of this, there's a man named Jairus who comes to Jesus, gets to him and says, Jesus, my daughter is very, very sick. She is on death's doorstep. Can you come to my house and heal her? Jairus had heard of his reputation and he was pleading with him, will you come and heal my daughter? And Jesus says, I will. And Jesus then, and Jairus heads out and he's thinking maybe there's hope. And, and as Jesus begins to move toward Jairus' house, a lot of things happen because Jesus is moving at the speed of relationship as he moves away and toward this, this issue that he needs to take care of. As he's walking along, his disciples are wondering why he doesn't pick up the pace a little bit. But Jesus is moving at the speed of relationship because as he's walking along, this some, someone touches the hem of his garment. And he turns and says, who touched, the, who touched me? And his disciples think he's crazy. Say, everybody's touching you. You know, everybody's surrounding you. There's people everywhere, hundreds of people around you. Jesus says, no, somebody touched me and the power went out from me. <laughs> and, and he turns and there's a woman there who's had this medical issue for, for most of her life. And he turns to her and, and, and he says, daughter, you've, your faith has healed you. He heals this woman. 
And that was amazing for that woman because Jesus was on his way to do something else and she was moving at the pace of relationship as well. And Jesus responded to that. And Jesus keeps moving toward Jairus' daughter. And other things happen, but his disciples are getting more frustrated with him because they're on a way to do an important thing. And finally, this, you know, one of the uh, teachers from the synagogue comes up and says, you know, quit telling him to hurry because the girl's dead. And there's no point in him coming. And Jesus gets to the house at his own pace. And when he gets there, he realizes that people are frustrated, but he's moving at the speed of relationship. And so he says, those of you who can't figure this out, you might as well just wait outside because if you don't get what's already happened, you're not going to get what's happening in that room in just a minute. And so he goes into the room with that little girl. You know what he says? Talitha kumi. Talitha kumi. You know what that means? It's a term of endearment, little girl. Or as we might say here in the South, honey, honey, wake up, get up. And you know what she does? She gets up. She gets up and Jesus is saying with that, he takes her hand. And with that, he's saying, if you're holding on to me, not even death is an issue for you. If you're holding on to me, there's nothing that can harm you nothing that can damage you because that's what relationship does. That's what relationship with Jesus does. So was it a transaction? Well, there was some transaction. Transactions are not bad, but relationship is the goal. And Paul, back to this church now at Philippi, he's wanting to show them that I'm here to have a relationship with you. I want you to know. Here's what I want you to know. And so if we were to take that, just those words and think about that, how do we apply that in our life? This is Paul's character coming out. Before anything else, this is the character part of this. This is who Paul has become. Paul's move from someone who wants to kill Christians to who wants them to know a better way, wants to give life to Christians. What if we lived our life that way? What if every person we locked eyes with, we were thinking, I want you to know. And there's a lot of things you may want them to know, but think about the most life-giving message you could possibly give them. I want you to know that death has no power over you. I want you to know that your life means the world, that you are worth it, that Jesus came and thought you were to die for. You've been set free. I want you to know that you are free because of Jesus Christ. I want you to know that. That's what Paul's saying. It comes from his character. The second thing Paul is doing is, I mean, with this, the second thing Paul's doing is it changes not only his attitude about what he wants them to know, but he wants them to know something about him and his circumstances. He knows that they're probably concerned about his circumstances. 
because, because Epaphroditus has already been there and must have told them some things about what Paul was going through. He was not having a great season in his life right now from an outward perspective. His circumstances were such that he was chained again to a Roman guard. There's a lot of places where Paul just lets his circumstances roll off his back. It's one of the things we admire a lot about him. But there are some places in Scripture where Paul elaborates on his circumstances. He doesn't really do it here. But there's a, there's a, a Scripture in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 30, that, he's, that he describes his circumstances in great clarity. And I want to just quickly read for you a part of this. This is after Paul has been writing to the church of Corinth. He's been getting messages back from Corinth that you know there are people teaching here who are false teachers. They're teaching something other than the gospel. And if you want to get on Paul's bad side, you teach something other than the gospel. And that's just what, ha what has happened here. And so Paul, and what they're saying is they're telling the church at Corinth, listen, we've got a better message for you than Paul because he's not that great a communicator anyway, which is true. I'll come back to that. He's not that great a speaker anyway. We're better speakers and we've got a better message for it. And it was a message that kind of tickled their ears, a message that kind of made them feel good about themselves, you know. And, and then they're saying, and we're higher ranked. We have more credentials than Paul does. And Paul then just kind of, it gets on his last nerve and Paul just writes these words. And I'm so glad these words are in the Bible. I'm going to read Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of them because I think they bring it to a, to a more current thought. Paul writes this, so are they servants of Christ? I can do them one better. I can't believe I'm saying these things. It's crazy to talk this way, but I started and so I might as well finish what I'm going to tell you. I've worked much harder. I've been jailed more often, beaten up more times than I can count at death's door time after time. I've been flogged five times with the Jews, 39 lashes, beaten by Roman rods three times, pummeled with rocks once. I've been shipwrecked three times, immersed in the open sea for a night in a day in hard traveling year in and year out. I've had to ford rivers. I've had to fend off robbers, struggle with friends, struggle with foes. I've been at risk in the city, at risk in the country, endangered by desert sun and sea storm. I've been betrayed by those I thought were my brothers. I've known drudgery and hard labor, many a long and lonely night without sleep, many a missed meal, blasted by the cold, naked to the weather. And that's not the half of it when you throw in the daily pressures and anxieties of all the churches. When someone gets to the end of his rope, I feel their desperation in my bones. When someone is duped into sin, an angry fire burns in my gut. But if I have to brag, if I have to brag, he says, I'll brag about the humiliations that have made me like Jesus. That's what he brags about. Paul's circumstances were a lot worse than your worst day. You can hear it right here. This doesn't even include the time that he's shipwrecked and he, and he washes up on shore in Malta, builds a fire and a snake bites him while he's trying to build a fire. I mean, this guy cannot get a break no matter what. And Paul's saying, listen, I know you know my circumstances, but let me tell you something. Here's what's happened. He cuts right to the chase with this amazing statement. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. 
This is the ESV version. The New American Standard uh, translates this verse this way. Now, I want you to know that my circumstances have turned out from the, for the greater progress of the gospel. The, the word that's used here, advance or progress, is prokope. And I named this sermon by this, because of this word, people of progress. Paul is saying that the gospel has made, taken, made progress because of my circumstances. The thing that's amazing to me in this verse that he says that, is he's talking about within him. His circumstances have, made, have advanced the gospel in him. Later on in verse 25, he says, uses the same word, prokope, and says, and it has also made progress in you. The gospel has gone, gone forward and the gospel has gone inward because that's what the gospel does. If the gospel grows in me, then there's something I want you to know that will be a benefit to you. If the gospel grows in you, then it's something that you want me to know because it will then grow in me. It's the same word. The gospel makes progress through our circumstances. And so the application for us might be this, to think about, so what's the worst circumstance in your life right now? Don't say it out loud, you'll depress everybody. But what's the worst circumstance in your life right now? I don't know, Tom, maybe it's Tennessee football. But I mean, but the gospel, or maybe it's Florida football. I, I mean, but the gospel can make progress even in our worst circumstance. And so maybe what we do, instead of saying, Lord, take away this circumstance, maybe sometimes we say, Lord, how is this gospel going to grow as a result of this circumstance in my life? Or maybe even what's the best circumstance in your life? What's the best thing you've got going? And so maybe it's Kentucky football. I don't know, Tom. But maybe it's Georgia football. I don't know. But whatever it is, what's the best circumstance in your life? Maybe instead of saying, isn't it awesome how I made all this come about to how cool and wonderful it made me. Maybe instead we think, God, how will this wonderful circumstance in my life make the gospel advance? Will you show me how the gospel can advance as a result of this circumstance in my life? Because here's the deal. The progress of the gospel is measured in this way. The progress of the gospel is measured in not only what it does for me personally, which is what Paul is saying, but what it does for us as a community, which is also what Paul is saying, and ultimately what it does for the whole world, which is what Paul is saying. And so with this, the next part of this, he tells them this thing that must have just blown their minds, Philippians 1, 13. So he says, so that, it, so that it has become made known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is always the case, again, that the, that the movement of the body of the gospel 
in me is also going to produce movement of the gospel in the body of Christ, likewise for you. And so Paul is saying that the brothers here, now he's not talking about the people at Philippi right now, he's talking about the people at Rome. And it must have given them great encouragement in Philippi to know that the gospel was growing among the Roman guard, because you know, Paul is chained to a Roman guard all the time. Can you imagine having that duty if you're one of those guards? Because if you poke Paul, the gospel comes out. So imagine Paul taking these circumstances he's in and, and, the, and the guard coming and, and with his dude to be chained up to Paul. And what's the first thing Paul says to him? He turns and says, well, good morning, Roman guard. Hey, do you know Jesus? Have I told you about if Jesus is in your life, he'll change your life. I know you think that I'm in chains. I'm not in chains. You're actually in chains because you're bound by your sin and you'll never get free from those chains. I'll get free from these chains one day. But if you know Jesus, then neither one of us are in chains. I mean, Paul would probably go on like that day on, day in and day out, hour after hour, to the point where these guys, they would do anything other than be there with Paul. Or they get saved. One of the two things happens. And Paul's saying, getting saved is what's happening. It's the gospel is progressing, advancing here, even in Caesar's household. Because his imperial guard are coming to know the truth of the gospel. And so this is going on and on. And here's the good news of this. Here's the part. Don't waste your trials. John Piper has written this great book and preached some great sermons about this. Don't waste the trials of your life. Don't waste the bad things. Use them for the glory of God. Because there is this residual effect when we don't waste our trials and we actually engage our trials for the good of the gospel that advances the gospel. I had this happen because blessings go both directions when this happens in our life. I had this happen to me just the, uh, just last week. I go to a little gym around the corner here called Anytime Fitness, and I love those people there. Uh, they go to Northland, the owner, Nancy, and Tamika, and Kinsey, and, and I go there not to exercise, but just to hang out with them because they're just the most awesome people in the world. And I was in there last week, and, and uh, one, of the, one of the women, uh, Kinsey, was getting ready to, he, she was talking to a, a prospective client uh, or, or customer and, and I'm leaving and as I go out, as I'm going out the door, I just tap her on the shoulder. I just put my hand on her shoulder and then, because I didn't want to interrupt her, but I, I wanted her to know I was gone so she didn't have to worry about me in there anymore. And so I put my hand on her shoulder and I go on out the door and just, and so then two days go by, I come back. And, I, and as I'm coming in, all three of them, Nancy and Tamika and Kenzie, are all waiting at the door. And as I come in, they said, you'll never believe what happened. And I said, what happened? And Kenzie said, well, the other day when you blessed me, and first of all, I just put my hand on her shoulder. You know, I didn't bless her. I mean, I, I have now. The story's going to change. But at that time... <laughs> At that time, I just put my hand on her shoulder, you know, and she said, right after you put, after you walked out and blessed me, she said, there was a gentleman on the machine right behind me who fell off the machine and he had had a major heart incident. And she said, by the time I turned to him and, and, and touched him, there was no pulse. She said, so I get on the phone, I'm, I dial 911, I'm talking to the dispatcher. 
We're, Tamika and Kinsey are doing compression on this gentleman, you know, and they're trying to restart his heart. The dispatcher says, get the defibrillator. She's, she's been trained on this, but she's never used it. And she said, I got the defibrillator. The dispatcher's walking me through it. And she says, what if he's not, what if he's got breath? It won't work. Just do it. Just put the defibrillator on it. Do it now. Do it right now. And she did it. She, she uh, used the defibrillator. By that time, the EMTs had gotten there. And when she did that, it restarted his heart. Yeah, and so then they loaded him up, put him on the cart, took him out. By the time he got out to the wagon, he was looking around. He had fully come back around. He had had one of those incidents they call a widowmaker. Less than 5% of the people that have those come back from them. And so the EMT comes back up and tell, tells Kinsey and Tamika, do you realize you saved this man's life? You've saved his life. And Kinsey and Tamika are telling me this story, elated, as you can imagine. And, and Kinsey said, and it started with you because you blessed me. And I said, I did. I did. I, I, I have that kind of power. I, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Because, man, I didn't want to be struck down and them have to use a defibrillator, you know, on me. I just said, you know, I just touched your shoulder. You know, I didn't do anything but touch your shoulder. And she said, no, you were involved. You were involved. So every day since then, when I go in there, I stick my head in her office and I said, so have you saved anybody's life today? And she says, no, but I could. Because it gave her a confidence of that. And I'm saying that's just an example of how the gospel works. We pass it on to one another. Some of us do very minor parts of it. Just touch somebody on the shoulder. Just, I want you to know. Those kind of things. Other people do the heavy work, do the hard work, the scary, scary work. But it all comes together because we are the body of, tri of Christ. And with that, I got to wrap this thing up with one last thought. And it's this. There's another part of this that I don't want to miss. It's, it's the challenge part. That's the circumstance part. Here's the challenge part. Paul then addresses something that he's heard back from the people at Philippi, that there are some preachers in Philippi who are going around and preaching a message, and some of them are saying bad things about Paul. Now, but here's the difference between the guys at Philippi and the guys at Corinth. They're preaching the gospel, the real gospel. But they're saying to the people around there that Paul is not the guy you think he is. You know that he is in jail right now. You know that he's not the most skilled orator. You know that I'm a lot better speaker than he is. And there's some evidence of this throughout the, you can read through, throughout the gospels and the epistles. Paul frequently says, listen, I didn't come to you with smooth words and great oratory skill. I came to you with the gospel. Now he's a brilliant man, don't get me wrong, a brilliant theologian, brilliant at writing, wrote some of the most incredible letters that you'll ever read. But in terms of public speaking, that was not his first love. And so he's, he understands this. And so these, these guys are saying this about him. But they're preaching the gospel. And Paul decides he needs to address it. And so here's what he says. He says in verse 15, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, 
knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. But Paul cuts right through all this with a simple gesture. He's challenged by these guys, but do you know what he does? He doesn't push back. He doesn't push back. He does something that we need to learn to do in our country today, and that is not win every argument. We need to learn how to, that sometimes the message matters more than even the motive. Because here's what Paul says in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Here's what I think your takeaway from that is. It's my takeaway. I've been thinking about this the last several days. There are things that I just need to, get, to be willing to absorb. Are people going to talk behind your back? Yeah, they are. Are people going to say things about you that aren't true? Yeah, they are. Are people going to make fun of you? Yeah, they are. And whether you're in a classroom or a cubicle or a job site or in your home or your neighborhood, there are things that we need to just learn to absorb because we are able to because of who lives in us. Jesus did this. Paul's saying, don't mix the motive with the message. Listen to the message. And then let God sort out where the motive is. It's not our job anyway. We can't fix everybody. All we can do is hear the message and decide, is this message of God? Is it true? Does it line up with Scripture? Then let it go. If it's, and if their motive is one of getting a leg up on you in some other way, let it go. Because what matters is the message, Christ being proclaimed. That's my takeaway. I hope it's yours. But I wanted you to know that that's what Paul wrote. And the, so the conclusion of all this is this. You and I have choices we'll make all day today about how we live our lives, the speed we live our lives, the way we look at one another, the way we communicate with one another. And the truth that Paul says is that in all these things, let's make sure that Christ is proclaimed. And that will produce joy in our lives and give you reason to rejoice. Would you stand and let me say a benediction over you? I want to tell you before I do this that there will be some folks in the front of this room that are prayers. They would love to pray with you about anything at all in your life, uh, especially your need to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Uh, if for any, any of the things you heard and want to get more information about, you can go to our website. You can uh, tap your online ministers there, Nathan and Bill, or you can stop and talk to one of the connection folks back in the foyer. But let me say these words of benediction over you that Paul said to the church at Philippi. I'm going to read them again. What then? 
only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, you can rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. Amen. Go in his peace.